So much has happened since we last had you on the podcast. Yeah, like what? Uh, you know. (laughs) 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 It's so good to have you back. It is. I've missed your voice. We've done a couple of episodes now. I've spent all of my Rue stamps that I accumulated from all the other episodes. I've spent them all now. So we've got to get you back on to, to earn some more. Can we unpack this Rue stamps thing? Because I, he- I keep hearing you reference these and I don't know what the hell you're talking about. What is a Rue stamp? <laughs> I, I think it's because you don't pay attention to the other episodes. It's true. I don't. Or while anybody else is speaking. <laughs> also true. <laughs> no, no, that's accurate. It's very accurate. Don't don't feel bad. He's 100% correct. I made a joke. A few episodes back like i'm I'm gonna say like three or four it wasn't that many was i on it or no it's when dave joined us right you didn't listen to the episode where dave was on that's the problem oh i was supposed to listen oh that's how you know you can you can always tell if i've listened because you can make a reference and then like ask me to comment on it the next time and you'll notice i never will <laughs> yeah so the whole thing was that you get rue stamps for working with you at the company and then you can trade those in to not work with you anymore. Oh, wow. Almost like national service. <laughs> wow. Loyalty stamps. That cuts. That cuts deep. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's harsh. I didn't realize that I was like a, uh, a charity case, I, I suppose. But could, could they work either way? So, you know, if you want to work with Rue... You just use up a few stamps. I don't think that that's the op- that's the opposite of what Matt's driving at. Yeah, I'm not sure you understand how currency works. <laughs> <laughs> Is it possible that if I want to buy a pineapple, that they just give me two dollars and then I get to take one? No, no, I'm sorry. If only we lived in that world. <laughs> Depends on how bad the pineapple is, I suppose. <laughs> right, shall we get on with the show? Shall we get on with some Watchtower Weekly? I always have to do that line. Have you ever noticed? I, I have noticed. Yeah. Now, should we get on with some Watchtower Weekly? Sure. Let's do great it. Great Matt impression. Yeah, if I sounded like I was from a Mary Poppins. <laughs> that was a great Matt impression. Thank you, Anna. I thought so, too. <laughs> so, uh, did either of you sign up for Disney Plus? I did not, no. Uh, it's not available in the UK. Oh, it's not. It's in the Netherlands, and it's in Canada, and it's, of course it's in the US. This is like Disney's version of Netflix, right? Yes, and it's fantastic. I experienced the most incredible sense of comforting nostalgia when I first signed in and I was like flipping through all like the old Disney cartoons that are available on there from like my childhood and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can watch DuckTales or Darkwing Duck tailspin like and it I, like immediately took me back it was it was pretty incredible so the the headline is that thousands of disney plus customers are hacked and i just think this is pure terrible cyber c- community news oh this is awful yeah disney plus was not hacked at all no this is people who are reusing their password getting their accounts compromised and to blame it on disney is is just sensationalism it really is it, it did happen to the tune of them replying Disney said Disney takes the privacy and security of our users very seriously and there is no indication of a security breach on Disney Plus. Right. As soon as you have to say takes the privacy and security of our users data very seriously, it sounds like there's a problem. But <laughs> I, I, I get that that's the document that's saved just in case somewhere that's approved by PR. But 
this is not what happened. This is false reporting. Yeah. Instead, what happened is, is that people whose passwords had previously been compromised, hackers just took those compromised passwords, those compromised accounts from elsewhere, and tried to see if they could log into Disney Plus with them. And sure enough, because people reused their passwords everywhere, they were able to. It's really just a, an opportunity attack is, is what's taking place here. I think just the speed of how it happened is what's quite outstanding, really. I think it was like hours after the service launched, wasn't it, that they were getting reports of these accounts being hacked. I mean, that's what happens when you gate a load of content around a username and password system without having like two factor or something like that and people are going to use bad passwords you know they should offer a password manager they should (laughs) they really should but like i don't know this really does bother me when they're reporting on things like this from this angle and and no one is seeming to to point them out yep i agree so take away from this one disney plus not hacked people still reusing passwords and their accounts were compromised. Almost a non-story. It's just sad, isn't it? It is. It's just the launch of like a nice service. So it's a shame it's been tainted by this kind of news and what should have been like a really nice thing for people to sign up for. Yeah, it's true. So the, the next one I feel like is is politically motivated by Anna. Having <laughs> put it in here. Aaron Banks' private messages leaked by hacker. Uh, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like this story is very 2019. <laughs> yeah. Who is Aaron Banks? Apparently he's known as one of the bad boys of, of Brexit. Aaron Banks is uh, the the leading figure of the leave.eu pro-Brexit campaign. Ah, yes, okay. And uh, he's just, he's generally a little bit of a sly, I'm not the politician that's going to implement this, but I'm going to cause a rift kind of person. Mm. Yeah, a little bit of a shady character. Gotcha. I'm not going to politicise what should and shouldn't happen in, in terms of, you know, people being hacked because it's all terrible. But the story here is basically how Twitter, how late they handled it, according to him. So they leaked all of his private messages and, and things like this. And uh, I'm, I'm betting this guy wasn't, you know, super technological to the point of understanding that that could happen. And I bet he had very private conversations in what he thought were private messages, but were actually direct messages. not private (laughs) so yeah a reporter actually said i've been sent the first set of direct messages from the file they are pretty explosive what are the ethics legals on this world question mark yeah i think you know from the point that they didn't publish them i'm assuming that you know aaron banks's lawyers were were pretty up on that and said uh we'll have none of that thank you it's a really interesting interesting one ethics around journalism is always something that interests me because there of course is this this sort of duty to report the news and, and and stuff like that but there's this whole set of rules and everything that governs when it's okay to disclose certain piece of information and how you disclose it and everything else and i'm assuming that aaron b a public figure comes into play here and everything else but because these were supposed to be private messages that adds a big wrinkle to it i truly don't know like i'm not i'm not even sure where i come down yeah what i find interesting here is actually in february this year leave.eu and an insurance company owned by him were fined £120,000 by the ICO for data breach protection laws. And then the journalist Carol Coldwater, who I think is best known for exposing the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, she said about this, that Aaron Banks has shown extraordinary contempt for the ICO and British data laws. And so this is a moment for him to reflect on the need for those laws and a regulator to enforce them. I like that. 
<laughs> a little bit of, uh, oh, you, you see that taste in your mouth? That's your own medicine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the, the only thing that could be sweeter is if the, it was a, an EU law that somehow protected him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, yeah, is more than likely. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we can uh, j- jump over to our, our interview this week. Yeah, we had Chris Boyd from Malwarebytes join us. Uh, I was even on part of the interview before I had to vacate my post for family illness and contractor-related issues. But uh, yeah, we're just going to drop that in here. So joining us today is Chris Boyd. Chris is the lead malware intelligence analyst at Malwarebytes. You might also know him by his online pseudonym, PaperGhost. Uh, He is at PaperGhost on Twitter. He is also the former director of malware research at FaceTime Security Labs. Rumor has it he has a very particular set of skills, skills that make him a nightmare for the scams facing us today. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on the show, man. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, Do you want to give people a little bit of, you know, I I gave sort of a fancy read in there, but do you want to give people a little bit more background about yourself and sort of, you know, where you've been and where you are today and how you got there in between? Yeah, sure. Thank you. It was very nice. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I originally was supposed to go off and draw pictures and paint paintings. I have a, a fine art degree and I wanted to work as an artist drawing Batman for DC Comics. The short version is that a friend of mine uh, back in university ran into some trouble with very bad people, and I came up with this very elaborate, terrible scheme to get her out of this situation, which involved obtaining a teach English as a foreign language qualification, flying to Japan, and then getting my friend out of there to get herself sorted out in Japan, and you know, then she could go on with her life and things like that. This was a terrible plan. I, I got the the teaching qualification. We came up with this elaborate scheme where I would talk to her online and pretend to be one of her friends, Sophie, because these people that she was she was hanging out with used to keep an eye on her. They'd see what she was typing on a PC. So obviously, if if I was talking to her as myself, saying we're going to do this, we're going to get you out of her. This is the plain information. They would, they would realize what was going on. And so anytime they were around, we would use code words. And so I would know they were about. She would know not to say anything incriminating effectively. And I would pretend to be her friend from the beach. Shortly before we were due to do this and fly out, I got a message from the, the school that I was supposed to go and teach at that it had actually burned down, which isn't the greatest of starts to this plan. So as I was explaining to her that this, this school had been burned down, I knew this these people were in in her, her flat, wherever. Um, so I was being very cautious how I was phrasing some of this. All of this old chat text started to appear on the computer screen at both ends. So lots and lots of old chat history just started to appear. We didn't know how, we didn't know why, but one of these people saw all of the text coming up on the screen, put two and two together and realized what was going on. And she basically went offline and I didn't hear from her again after that. And eventually someone I I sort of vaguely knew as one of her friends let me know that basically one of them had beat her up pretty badly, put her in hospital, and she stopped eventually replying to emails. She stopped replying to messages and he knew his way around computers. I didn't really know much at this point. And he'd, he'd figured out that someone somewhere had hacked this PC, had put a really crude basic Trojan on there, and someone had just been reading all of this stuff, saving it, and they'd just chosen that random message to randomly post up all of this chat text, not realizing the very severe consequences 
that came about as a result. So that originally got me interested in spyware, hacking, computers, and security. And, you know, ways that you could look into this, ways that you could get it shut down, ways, ways that you could stop this happening to, to other people. So I became self-taught. I was working as uh, in an insurance company in the day. I was teaching myself uh, the computer, the security side of things in the evening. I got started on, I'm sure you remember some of the old grassroots security forums like uh, Spyware Warrior, Spyware Info, uh, Bleeping Computer is still around now. On the, the hijack this forums where they would teach you to uh, manually strip out malware, spyware, and adware from the PC with hijack this. And I set up a blog in my spare time. I wrote about things that I thought were interesting, things, things that I'd found. Didn't realize that they were as big as they would potentially turn out to be. And suddenly all of these things I, w- I was discovering and writing about ended up in the press. It gained the attention of several security companies. I was hired by... FaceTime Security Labs, became the the director of research after about a year. And I moved from FaceTime to Sunbelt Software. And then eventually we we were spun out as a ThreatTrack security. And from there, I I left ThreatTrack and moved to uh, Malwarebytes. And that is my very, very short potted history. Wow. Yeah, very honorable journey. That's a fantastic reason to don a cape and help out in in cybersecurity. So how do you go about, you know, researching new threats and discovering these things? Like where does your research start? And, you know, are, are they becoming more sophisticated and, and harder to find? Is, you, is your job getting harder? Oh yeah, it's, um, it's, it's always becoming increasingly more difficult, even where you're dealing with the more human side of things, because I used to deal a lot with the, the malware side of things, the more technical side of things. As my research has gone on, I find myself looking less at the the more technical threats, the more malware-laden attacks, and looking more at the human side of things, so social engineering, things like that. But even in that realm, you know, you go back five, ten years, a lot of social engineering threats tended to be quite obvious. It was it was very easy to pinpoint these things, to find these things and, and find ways to shut them down. Now, you know, they're increasingly clever. There's a really common one that, that comes around in waves um, that we've done quite a bit of research into. And it's where legitimate services and products uh, offer, you know, customer support on social networks like Facebook and Twitter, Twitter specifically. And we discovered that lots of scammers were creating imitation accounts of real accounts. And then they would watch those real accounts offer customer support help to uh, customers. They would keep track of the times that these social media accounts were effectively online. So they knew, for example, if Company X's customer support were helping people from, say, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., once it hit 5 p.m. and all of the real support staff went offline, the scammers would slide themselves into those conversations with imitation accounts and, you know, without missing a beat, would start talking to these, these customers as if they were still the real customer support. So a few messages into that, they would send them off to a phishing page or they would ask for login details via direct message and try and steal their personal information, their money, uh, their bank details, whatever they could get their hands on. And this is a really clever tactic, but it's very, very difficult to, to keep track of, to shut down, to pinpoint especially if the scammers are actually using your own usage of social media against you. So, you know, they will plug this information into websites where you can see when people are posting most frequently, 
they will just do something very simple, like see what your your posting hours are posted to your Twitter feed. They will target businesses that maybe don't have a blue tick. So it's even more difficult to work out that it is an imitation account. Um, so it's very clever stuff and it's very, very hard to, to tackle. Yeah, when we talk to people about cybersecurity and they describe all the things that they do to protect their development team or their DevOps team and, and, and things like that, the people who you know have the real damaging keys to the kingdom, they usually gloss over the the everyday accounts like the social accounts and, and like the, you know, our, our marketing team has has social media and, and things like that. It, it is interesting that, that people don't view those accounts almost as being as damaging as, you know, these huge keys to the kingdom. But they're almost worse, right? Because, uh, you know, this whole thing of being able to take over a Twitter account like that and, you know, attacks like that usually go on for some time before anybody notices. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to be, to be clear, it's not it's also not really the the organization completely to blame here because these are these are very sneaky attacks in terms of, you know, the, 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 the front facing aspects of the organization. Uh, very often you will see someone give poor security advice from an official corporate account. We've, we've all seen this. Normally it's a bank telling people to use, you know, three character passwords or you know, uh, paste paste their information into wild Twitter rather than direct message and various other bad pieces of advice. And then everyone will will jump on this and make fun of them and all the rest of it. But they are just frontline customer support staff on Twitter. They've been handed the social media account. They've probably been given a list of 10 things not to do and five things to do. They almost certainly haven't had any specific security training so in, in terms of the, the frontline facing staff, I, I, it always makes me slightly nervous when I see these people being piled on on various social media platforms because it, it, it may well be the fault of the business as a whole for not teaching them about these things. But I think it's the wrong approach when we start you know, beating these, these people, manning these accounts over the head. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. Has anything really shocked you or frightened you in your career? What's been your scariest moment or discovery? Oh, good question. I was very, very invested in researching and finding rogue web browsers for a long time because I was fascinated by the idea that people, you know, we, we all want to try the latest new browser. We all want to try alternatives to the, to the standard offerings. And we just implicitly trust Web browsers, you know, someone offers a, a web browser, it doesn't even have to be a, a particularly well-known named entity. People will just grab it and try it. And I, I'm fascinated by this idea that we just essentially invite these programs into our PCs and just kind of trust that they're the real deal. And I found a run of these rogue web browsers for about ooh, maybe seven or eight years. They were very, very heavily tied to adware monetization. So one of the very first ones came out, I think it was about 2007-ish, something called Yap Browser, which was just advertised as a standard alternative to Internet Explorer and one or two other browsers. You know, it was supposedly quicker, it was faster, it would protect you from viruses. And it was essentially just a sort of wrapper wrapped around IE. It only had one or two buttons on it, so it wasn't very functional. And the moment somebody downloaded this thing and hit the button to go to the start page, the home page, wherever it was, it would immediately redirect you to a list of several paid pornography websites, at least one of which was almost certainly pushing illegal pornography. And you think, you know, someone sitting at home has just downloaded this new web browser that's been advertised, 
loads it up, and they're, they're instantly faced with the absolute worst of the internet just because they hit the, you know, go to the homepage button is just incredible. So the fact that this was out there was just, was absolutely staggering. You know, it, it was advertised with some of this advertising software installed. You know, there would be an installer there saying, you know, install this, this to, to gain access to this program. So very quickly, the advertising deal was shut down with them. And we started getting emails from one of the, the developers of this program that, that claimed the distribution model had gone out of control. They didn't really know how it had happened, who had placed this link to these rogue websites on there. It was a complete lack of responsibility. And we saw this happen again and again with these rogue web browsers. There was another one called the Safety Browser, which claimed that we keep your PC safe from virus attacks and Trojans. As long as you shut down all of your, you know, your security settings and just trusted the, the browser's own settings. And again, all it really did was hijack your desktop and play a, an endless loop of thrash metal guitar music on a loop. <laughs> for, the, for the length of time you had this thing open and there were other rogue web browsers which came with their own root kits or redirected you to pornography websites which would then try and you know perform additional installs so these these things really died off with the death of the old school adware industry but in terms of you know you think about the worst what's the worst possible thing you could end up with on your pc when you sit down to go browse the internet that has to be up there at the top somewhere, I think, just, just because of the, the sheer awfulness of the content and also the, the legal trouble that, that someone could end up in through no fault of their own. Absolutely. And like, you know, back in the day when perhaps we weren't as a society quite as concerned about the internet as we seem to be, you know, at the moment, hopefully with kind of app stores and things like that, we're verifying the stuff that we download a little bit more these days. It does seem like we're in a golden age for scams, though. Technical support scams, social media scams, you know, job seekers and, and green card scams. What do you think are the, the most common scams that are around right now? One of the ones that we see an awful lot of at the moment, generally, they all tend to be around extortion. So there's the traditional sextortion email scams where they pull up a list of old compromised email addresses. So these are, you know, dumps going back years and years and years, potentially. And then they will email these addresses to say, hey, we've been watching you. We hacked your computer. We know what you've been looking at. We've got pictures of you looking at uh, pornography. Here's your old password to prove that we've accessed your email account seen all of this, please pay us some Bitcoin. And of course, it's a complete scam. They haven't been watching anyone. They haven't hacked anything. This person has probably changed this password long, long ago uh, and is probably more concerned about how they got this, this old password, but they'll still probably potentially fall for the scam because it sounds so plausible. And everything that's really common at the moment always usually comes with an implied threat of some kind uh, because they know that's what will get the job done ultimately for the scammers. Yeah, it seems that, you know, they've kind of stepped up the game recently in, in terms of pretending that you need to do it immediately or you're in trouble or, or something like this. So, so what can the average person do to protect ourselves from these scams? Like, are there always telltale signs? There are occasionally some telltale signs, but it, it really depends because we find that a lot of these attacks tend to be less random than they used to be. They, they tend to be a bit more crafted, a bit more targeted. And at this point now, you know, versus five, 10 years ago or even further, there's so much information out there that's being compromised and it's just floating around in the ether. There's so many web servers that are wide open with no authentication. There's so many companies that just didn't do a very good job of locking things down. So, you know, all of this customer data is out there floating around. It's been downloaded, analyzed. 
it's very easy now to come up with a, a reasonable picture of an individual that you would like to target for a specific scam. The best things generally you, you advise people to do, and I know some of this advice is, is old hat. I know everybody says this. But in, in terms of locking down the actual hardware side of things, you know, the layered approach, you know, using a password manager, making sure your machine is up to date, making sure your security software, it's not causing an impact on system resources. It is switched on. It is updated. You do do regular scans. These things do help in the vast majority of cases if you actually have all of these things enabled, if you actually think twice before clicking the link or making sure that you're not being sent to a bit.ly link instead of a real support website, you know, why are they using a shortened URL? Why does this website want me to input all of this information? And, you know, similarly, older pieces of advice that security firms, security researchers used to give is no longer necessarily that useful. So it used to be the case that we would say as an industry, you know, always make sure the website you go to has got a padlock, it's secure, it's HTTPS. That's no longer useful because, of course, it's so easy now to get a free certificate installed on your website that we see a big increase in scammers making use of security certificates. So if we're telling people if there's a padlock there, it's the real thing, that's, that's no longer useful and is actually making it worse potentially. So it's, it's not just a case of giving people the basics and hoping they stick to the plan. It's also that we have to do our part and constantly go back, look at the advice we gave a year ago, five years ago, six months ago, and think, well, okay, this, this helped at the time. The bad people are now doing this. So it's, it's either not helpful or it's actively harmful. And then, you know, reassess and readjust and give people the new way to do things. Yeah, I know, definitely. You know, I, I was talking to my, my parents who always check the padlock before they kind of enter their credit card details into a website. And I was like, well, you know, that's complicated. <laughs> and, and so there's, there's, there's a difficult decision, you know, that we have to make in terms of going back on our own, on our own advice. But yeah, in, in certain cases, I think it's, it's really necessary. So when we talk about like preventative measures, you know, swapping to kind of business related, I guess, how much of the, the responsibility is, is down to the corporation's to protect their customers versus the consumer to protect themselves? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, ultimately, I, I take the, the stance that, you know, we've all got to protect ourselves or, or everybody suffers, whether it's the person at home trying to buy something on Amazon and hoping they end up on Amazon and not a scam site, or it's a, it's a business trying to lock down their data and make sure they're protected against a ransomware attack. So I, I think it's a learning process. You see a lot of businesses that have nothing in place for a, a, a ransomware attack, for example. And then you'll see businesses that they think they've got it right because, oh, you know, we've got backups. But there isn't that next step of planning. So, okay, you've got backups, but if you get compromised, are, are the backups, is it just one backup? Is it on the network that's being compromised? More importantly, is the backup sensible? So, you know, you often see incidents where a company is being compromised and their backup procedure was a complete disaster. They had files and folders everywhere. They had duplicates here, there, and everywhere. They had things on the wrong drive. Nobody knew how to actually piece this stuff back together again. If an outbreak occurred, it was just, okay, we'll back it up and take care of it later. There are organizations in the States where they've ultimately had to pay the ransom because it would have been more expensive to try and go with the backup plan. And then, of course, they have to bring in external consultants, people from places like Microsoft to come in and help fix things. You've got forensics to take into account. So all of the, the fix-up 
procedure, if not done correctly, can cost several times more than just paying the ransom. And of course, we don't want people to pay the ransom because it just encourages the bad people to, to come back and do it all over again. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that we now have cyber insurance becoming more and more popular. But then there's, there's this endless question of, well, okay, if we insure companies for these cyber attacks, will that also not just encourage the attackers to not only come back and do it again, because they know that insurance firms will pay out, but should we not just also increase the, the ransom? Because if, if they know that insurance company X will pay a flat fee of, you know, however many thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds it is, you know, 50, 60, $70,000. Well, okay, why, why, why not just make the ransom the, the maximum amount that the, the insurer will pay out? We don't need to, you know, blackmail them for $300 or $6,000. Let's go for 30, 40, 50, whatever it is. But by the same token, what other solution is currently in place? Because they we're essentially telling businesses, don't insure yourself because you'll encourage the scammers. But the scammers are going to do it anyway, and at least these businesses have something to fall back on. Yeah, you know, the the idea of, of cyber insurance kind of, you know, making these these targets a lot more attractive is a really interesting one because these insurance companies love to tell you who they're insuring as well. Like they always love to, to say kind of publicly, hey, yeah, you know, we're we're partnering with these guys and they're they're huge and we're insuring them. That's that type of thing. And I'm always like, Well, that's that's a nice directory for for scammers to come along and i i'm always always <laughs> weirded out by that decision it's like marketing haven't spoken to security but um do you think like investing into things like bug bounty programs can kind of be the the opposite to insurance the the kind of not you know reactive but kind of preemptive attack finding source like do you, do you think enough companies are, are running things like bug bounties i do think they're very beneficial i think we're in a better place for having them i long long time ago used to find a lot of flaws with very very popular services that were out there so i think back in 2006 <laughs> it's a long time ago now i don't know if you remember the social network orcourt which was massive in India and Brazil and a few other places. And Google bought this social network platform. I found one of the first, if not the first worms on the Oracle platform. So we tested it, we got it to work. And essentially what it did was spam your message board on Oracle, if you like, with a message. People clicked it and it downloaded and installed a file which would steal banking information and then mail it uh, with a, an online web form, and it spread like wildfire. So we, you know, we gave it to Google. Google looked at it. They got it shut down. Uh, they got it fixed. And it was actually off the back of that work. And some other people were finding other things, uh, other problems, other exploits, vulnerabilities with Google products at the time. The Google actually first came up with the Google Hall of Fame. So essentially, I ended up on the Google Hall of Fame be before it was the Google Hall of Fame. So there's a there's a thank you page there where I'm listed with 15, 16 other individuals where they thanked us for our contribution to res responsible disclosure on this thank you page. And then over time, they saw the value in saying thank you to researchers and getting people like myself to work with them. And that was one of the main spurs for them to turn it into a fully-fledged book bounty rewards program stroke Hall of Fame. So it's, it's nice to think that some of the work I did back then along with other people has actually helped to, in some weird way, 
make it very public, make it, you know, a good positive thing that people can get out there and do. Uh, I think companies should have these book bounties. I think it should be a more welcoming process. I think when big companies like uh, Rockstar recently opened up their bounty process for the PC release of Red Dead Redemption, all of these things helped to legitimize it as a, as a standalone industry and something that, that is beneficial to the companies and the people that find these bugs. And frankly, I will take this over the way it used to be done. <laughs> Nobody in security circles knew anybody at any of the companies that were putting products out, services out, social networks out. I still remember finding flaws, problems, things like that on sites like MySpace. And it was a nightmare to try and get hold of an actual human that understood the problem, would actually do something about the problem and actually talk to you about it and get it fixed. It was an absolute nightmare. So, it, you know, the difference for me now is absolutely night and day, I think. Yeah, it, it is that route of conversation that, uh, that the security community can kind of engage in. And the, the reward is almost kind of an aside to that. But I, I do find that you know, the kind of companies that have bunk bounties are like ourselves, for example, or like you mentioned, Rockstar Games. And But I, I think there is value in like places that have e-commerce sites as well. Like I understand that opening themselves up to a bug bounty means that they're, they're going to be paying uh, probably through the nose to begin with. But but I think you know if you look at a company like British Airways, they had their issue for a long time before anybody took advantage of it. And I feel like stuff like that, cyber insurance obviously would help from a financial point of view. But a bug bounty program on something like that would not solve the problem, but it would at least allow other people to find it for them. Oh yeah, I, I agree, absolutely. So I, I think that's all we have time for, but do you have uh, any security tips or practices that you live by that you'd you know, like to pass on to our listeners? I mean, obviously, two-factor authentication is great and many, many more, again, sites and services now offer it. I would always advise using an app-based offline version of 2FA or, you know, uh, something involving a physical device plugged into the PC rather than SMS, just because there's so many things that can go go wrong now with um, SMS 2FA. You know, if you the, the way I see it, if you've done everything you possibly can do to keep yourself secure, if you've if you followed all the, the correct steps, if you've installed things, if you've kept everything up to date and your information still gets leaked, you, you did everything you could basically. And I think also, you know, by the same token, if if a third party company holding your data has been breached, you absolutely shouldn't feel guilty about that because it is completely out of your hands. So I think I think we need we need to maybe get rid of the the guilt shaming a bit more than we do. And if someone is you know satisfied and comfortable that what they've set up, what they've got on their PC and you know what they've got for their real world uh, social engineering defenses are sufficient, then they should go with it. And if, if a wheel falls off somewhere, if something turns out not to be as good as they thought it was, they just they just adapt and move on. I think that's very valuable advice. You know, there, there's enough people in, in Have I Been Pwned now to understand that, you know, security does affect everybody. However many years you've worked in security, uh, you've probably still got a password in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. So this week we had, uh, well, last week we had a really good giveaway. Yeah, so this was our act of kindness giveaway. We were asking people to recommend someone who they thought needed one password and we would give them a family account for free. And we've gone with Zoe Rose on Twitter who says, if it's brilliant work with OSPA Safe Escape, I'd highly recommend Chris for the three-year family account. 
And Chris is the Executive Director of Operation Safe Escape, which helps victims of tech-enabled abuse, stalking and harassment to stay safe. So, yeah, I thought that was a really nice one. So um, we're going to give him three years of one password for free. And we're also going to send some swag over to Zoe for recommending him. That is really very cool. And I always love when I hear about programs like this uh, around sort of cyberbullying and cyber harassment and stuff like that. So I think this is, this is a really cool giveaway and I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. I think this is a good place to talk about real or not real. Yeah, Rue's first time. Yeah, what is this? This is replacing what the phrase, oh, Rue. All right. I loved what the phrase. I know. So this is where Anna tells us some fake news and we have to guess whether it's not <laughs> fake or not. Okay. Yeah. And you're welcome to go off on your traditional Rue tangents and give me a backstory. I don't see why I would bother. None of those get included in the show ever. So how would you know? You don't listen to the show. <laughs> well, you got me there. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. yes. So it rains diamonds on Saturn and Jupiter. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, no, 100% this happens. (laughs) Well, like carbon, right? Diamonds and and stuff are made of carbon. Does it rain carbon? Can it rain carbon? Wait, no, I'm going to back. No, I'm going to say this doesn't happen. (laughs) I I don't think you can just create carbon in the atmosphere and then just rain it down into... So diamonds are created with with heat and pressure. Well, I'm I'm thinking they've got that right. And where's that heat and pressure coming from? Hang on, what was the two places again? Jupiter and Saturn? Yes. Mm, Saturn sounds hot. (sighs) Maybe there's something to do with like the... as, As something enters the atmosphere, it's sort of... There's enough heat there to sort of... Are you like a space person? Do you... Like if space travel was normal... And, and, and available to everyone mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. a reasonable cost. Mm. Would you go to space? Uh, nah. No, me neither. I have no interest. I'm really, I'm not Saturn, okay. I'd like to see it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for that VR experience of Saturn. Uh, <laughs> do I want to be rained on by diamonds? I mean, somewhat, yes. <laughs> Make it rain. Make it rain. <laughs> I think this is false mm. because I uh, I don't know how the surface wouldn't be littered in diamonds. Well, maybe it is. Because diamonds are, uh, as the famous saying goes, forever. So it would just be piling up with diamonds. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a girl's best friend. I mean... That too. So I'm going to take uh, the position, the, the opposite position then. I'm going to say this is 100% real. I'm going to stick with my original reaction, which is yes, absolutely. And I don't know how or why, but yes. <laughs> so one of you is correct, obviously. <laughs> and it's Rue. Rue it is real. Yeah, I knew it. So diamonds or hailstones form on Saturn and Jupiter when lightning storms turn methane into soot or carbon, which, as it falls, hardens into chunks of graphite and then diamond, according to the BBC. Oh, damn it. I got the carbon bit right as well. You sure did, yes. The largest diamonds are reportedly about one centimetre in diameter. Hmm. So, pretty big, really. So if you can figure out how to get there and harvest them, do a little bit of business here. You, yeah. you might pay for your own trip. Come back the richest man in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think on that note, that's all we've got time for. Love you, Rue. Yeah, love you both. Love you guys. <laughs>